Well, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Christmas has come and gone. There's, there's just so much buildup. And just like that, it just seems like you blink and it's past. Well, today we conclude our Christmas series, The Born Identity, with part three. And yeah, it's somewhat strange to still be preaching a Christmas message when Christmas is over. But today's story happens after Jesus' birth, so it actually seems somewhat appropriate. Today's story is going to help shed some, some insight in some of the tougher questions that we have when it comes to Christianity. Some of the questions like, how can we know that God's present in the midst of all the craziness and chaos that goes on and around us in our world? Or if Christianity is true, how come everyone doesn't just agree on it? Or how about this one? Does God love only Christians? How does he feel about other people? We're going to be looking at the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. First, let's break down that nativity scene that you may or may not have taken down already. If you have, that's, that's a little quick, but... I love nativity scenes. I think they're great. But when you combine our nativity scenes with some of our most beloved Christmas carols, they're not exactly historically accurate or realistic. Some of our carols make the night of Jesus' birth seem like this quiet, beautiful moment. But if you've ever been in the room of when a baby is born, it is not a silent night. And all is not calm, and all is not bright. Or away in the manger, think about that. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes? I mean, I suppose that's nicer than the carol of the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, then little Lord Jesus notices that there's a cow staring in his face and begins to freak out crying. That just doesn't have the same ring. But for whatever reason, the wise men are always in every nativity scene. But they wouldn't show up in, in history until Jesus is a toddler. They don't even start making the trek towards Bethlehem until that night. The first role I ever had in a play was in kindergarten. I was wise man number two. Now, now I know the real Christmas story. Uh, now that I know it, I feel like a fraud because it's totally, I was, my part was totally historically inaccurate. And what I should have done was said, hey, Mrs. Simmons, guess what? I'll play your wise man number two, but I'm not going to come back and bring the frankincense until I'm in grade two. And then I'll bring it then. That, that's integrity. But in fact, if you want to be true to your nativity, here's what I suggest you do. Bring your wise men back out in June. At least then the timeline is a little more, a little more accurate. They can, they can visit Jesus then. Also, we always assume that there are three wise men. That's because we always sing, we three kings, or, or that's because there were three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the Bible never states that there were only three. This group of traveling astrologers likely would have had a dozen or, or more, including some of their families. So instead of three kings on camels traveling across the, the moonlight, which we, we see in the pictures, it would have been this large caravan that would have made the trip. 
Okay, so who are these guys anyway? Well, first of all, they were astrologers. And I'm not talking just like a bunch of nerdy guys who get together once in a while who own a telescope and they get together on Tuesdays. Their title indicates that they were part of the Persian royalty. But what caused them to come to the conclusion that this star way off in the distance would lead them to the birth of a king? Well, in short, God revealed it to them. But there's a little, more, a little bit more than that. Persia, where the men were from, is where some of the brightest from Israel were taken when the Babylonians captured their land at one point in history. We know that the, from the book of Daniel that that is where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, among others, were taken to. And without any doubt, they would have likely shared their writings, the writings of Moses and the prophets, with their new community. And in these writings, there were prophecies about a promised Messiah. One of those prophecies would have likely been known by the wise men, or sometimes what they're called as the Magi. It's the story of Balaam in Numbers 22, and it goes like this. So one of the kings is an enemy to Israel. His name is Balak. He hires a prophet named Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam agrees that he'll do it, but he'll do it only for the right price. Well, God's against the whole thing, so he sends an angel to stand in Balaam's way. So Balaam's riding his donkey and heading towards the, this, this kingdom, and he see, the, the donkey itself sees the angel with a sword standing in the way. And when he sees it, he bolts off into a field. Balaam, angry, beats the donkey, and they continue on. Further down the road, the donkey sees this angel again standing with the sword between two walls. And so the, the, the donkey squeezes past the, the, past the angel, crushing Balaam's foot. Well, Balaam is so angry with the donkey, and he beats him again. We pick it up in Numbers 22, verse 26. says, Then the angel of the Lord moved further down the road and stood in, place, in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. This time, when the donkey saw the angel, it lay down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. It's hilarious. What have I done to you that deserves you, your beating me three times? It asked Balaam. Balaam responds with, you made me look like a fool. Now, his response should have been, why is my donkey talking right now? But he goes on to say, if I had a sword with me, I would kill you. And the donkey says, but I'm the same donkey you've ridden all your life. Have I ever done anything like this before? No, Balaam admitted. Then God opens the eyes of Balaam and he sees the angel for the first time. He realizes that this donkey has actually saved his life. So instead of cursing Israel, Balaam blesses Israel. And part of that prophecy is found in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It says this, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. So the prophecy that from Daniel may have been very familiar to the Magi when this, when this star appears. So when they, as soon as they see it, someone connects the dots and they say, they're like, hey, this is the one we've been waiting for. Let's go. So that's the Magi. Then there was Herod from our story, who is a peculiar character. Herod was one of the worst kings Israel ever had. He was by blood a Jew, but he was 100% a puppet of Rome. 
Herod was incredibly flashy and just pretentious. He, he loved to build big structures like temples and, and palaces, and he loved to put his name on those things. And he, was just, and he was also incredibly jealous and paranoid. Anytime he thought there was a threat to his throne, he would have that threat eliminated. Once he killed his wife because he thought his wife was conspiring against him. A few years later, three of his sons, he thought they were doing the same thing, and he had them killed as well. The Emperor Augustus once said, it would be better to be Herod's cow than one of his sons. Perhaps the craziest thing that Herod ever did was on his deathbed, he ordered dozens of other noblemen to be executed at the same moment that he died. And his reasoning was this, he wanted the entire land to mourn his death. And he didn't think that the, the land would actually mourn his death, but one way he knew that there would be a, a whole lot of people within the land mourning was to have a whole bunch of people executed at the same time. Well, thankfully, Herod died and the order was never carried out. But Herod only cared about making himself prosperous. That's the kind of king he was. One time, Herod was short on cash. So he had 45 of the wealthiest people execu or executed on false charges and seized their estates in order to help his bottom line. It was also said that he would tax the citizens 50%. So a tax collector would come in, they would take 50% to Herod, 12.5% would go to Caesar, and then they would take a cut for themselves. At times, you might be a humble fisherman. You've brought in your whole haul for the day, and when all is said and done, you've paid 75% tax between Herod, Caesar, and the tax collector, the crooked tax collector. At one point in Herod's reign, the Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish Supreme Court, they sent a delegation to Rome to plead with Caesar. They told him, Herod has reduced Israel to a land full of helpless beggars. It's no wonder. So in Matthew 2, 4, it says this. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. This is where the, if you're watching a movie, this is where that evil bad guy music would come in because he had no no intent of worshiping Jesus. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the palace where the child was. When they saw the star, they, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Let's look at four things we find in this story. Number one, the gospel is for everyone of every nation. If you look at the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of the writers had their own reason and their own audience that they were writing towards. Matthew's gospel is for the Jews. 
He wants them to see that Jesus was the Messiah and the king that they had read about in the Old Testament that had been prophesied, that they had been waiting on. So it's interesting that some of the first, the first people to come and worship him as a king are actually not Jews at all. And this isn't an accident. Matthew later closes his gospel with Jesus saying, go into all the nations, baptizing them and preaching the word. He, he begins with the nations coming to see Jesus, and he ends with the nation going to the nations with the gospel message. Jesus came for the nations. He was not a savior just for the Jews or just for the Middle East or just for the Eastern Hemisphere. He was a savior for all. The mission of the church is not complete then until every nation has heard the message. We, we think at this point in history that, that everyone has heard the gospel. But according to studies, 1.5 billion people on the earth have no access to the gospel message. It's not translated in their language. There's been no one to preach it to them. Three billion people have very limited access to the gospel. Our job is not done as a church. With so many people that have not been reached, and Jesus saying, go to the nations and preach the word, that doesn't mean that you need to pack up and go head to the missions field. I mean, maybe it does. I mean, that, that's kind of between you and God. I don't know. But if you aren't, if you aren't, what are you doing with where you are planted with that message? If you aren't able to go, you and I one day will need to justify to God what it is that made us stay compelled, compelled to stay exactly where we are and what did we do with that? That's a question all of us have to answer. Number two, God has rule over the universe to accomplish his will. This is very similar to what we talked about a couple weeks ago, about how God moved the Romans to tax the entire world to fulfill a prophecy to have Mary and Joseph return to Bethlehem. Well, the same thing goes here. God wanted the Magi to come and worship Jesus, arrange the constellations to make it happen. He has complete control over world powers, but he's bigger than that. He has control over nature and control over the stars. And if he could control that, you have to think he can control the things that are over your circumstances. You know, it's humbling because sometimes I, I can think, here I am, God, use me to accomplish your will. You need me, but he doesn't. He, I mean, the truth is he chooses to use me. He chooses to use you. You get to partner with him, but a God that is big enough to rearrange the constellations, he doesn't need you, but he wants you. Number three, wisdom that is not godly is temporary. Why were they called the wise men? They were called the wise men because they could read the stars. People were awed at their knowledge but later, people would ridicule that same knowledge. I mean, today, reading the stars seems foolish. Only a handful of people believe that there's anything to that. Often what was wise once, today is ridiculed. Or what was, what's wise today will then be ridiculed tomorrow. See, we laugh at the idea of the world being flat, but when at one point, that was wisdom. Even Einstein is, pr is prone to this. Einstein had this, this theory of, of a static universe. That the, the, the universe is static, it's never changing. And then the Hubble telescope shows us that the universe is ever expanding. It's constantly in this state of expanding, proving that Einstein was wrong. Every generation thinks that it is much wiser than the one before it. That, that the things that we know now will still be wise later on. But there are things that we believe to be fact today that generations later from now will ridicule. 
to think anything else is just arrogant. Yet in the Bible, when I read my Bible, there are truths about God and there's truths about eternity that have been believed by Christians for 2,000 years that have never changed. C.S. Lewis said, all that is not eternal is eternally outdated. Here's a question. How did the wise men find Jesus? A star, right? Wrong. The star got them started, but how did they find him? It was actually in the scriptures. The scriptures gave the wise men the detail to know exactly what they were looking for and how to find him. See, Matthew's trying to show you that worldly wisdom can get you started, but ultimately the only thing that holds to the test of time is God's wisdom. Here's the other thing. The wisdom of God is inclusive. Anyone that picks up the Bible is is welcome to know God's truths. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter what your social standing is. It doesn't matter what your financial situation is. It's open to anyone. The, the first people to worship Jesus on, are on both ends of the spectrum. You have the shepherds who are the non-educated outcasts, and you have the wise men who are the highly educated nobility. The interesting part is this. The three groups, the first three groups that worship this Jewish Messiah— were unworthy to do so in the eyes of the Jews. You have the shepherds who were too shady and outside the temple. You have the wise men who were too pagan and outside the faith. And then you have his parents, Mary and Joseph, who were too blemished with their apparent sin. Yet this is how Matthew presents the gospel to a Jewish audience. Matthew's showing them that their acceptance before God is not about merit. It's all about grace. Last thing this story teaches is this, and let's start reading in verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the, bo- all the boys in, the, in and around Bethlehem who were two years and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. That brings us to our fourth and final point. Jesus is the answer to senseless evil and pain. See, the story ends in tragedy. When Herod realizes that these wise men are not coming back, he goes on one of his rages and he orders all the baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem to be killed. Skeptics have called this fictional because there's actually no writing record of of this event outside of the Bible. But because Bethlehem was this small rural town, this massacre would have killed anywhere between 20 and 30 babies. But compared to Herod's horrific other deeds, it was so small in comparison to the other things that he had done, the other horrific things he had done. It wouldn't even cause a blip on the radar. That's why there's no record of it outside of the Bible. That doesn't make the scene insignificant for the families, though. This is the worst day of their lives. Matthew quotes two verses that speak hope into this tragedy. And it speaks speaks hope into our tragedy as well. The first is Matthew 2.15. I have called my son out of Egypt. A a reference to the uh, the exodus from Egypt in which God took Israel out of the brutal pain. 
of slavery and brought them into a land of peace. The second reference is this. Matthew 2.18 says, A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. See, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31.15, in which Jeremiah offers hope to the, to the children of Israel that they are being taken off into exile. You see, after God has brought Israel to the promised land, Israel sinned so persistently, so defiantly, that God sent them into exile. Between 500 and 400 BC, the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the city and took a bunch of Jewish captives captives and held them as prisoners in this place just north of Jerusalem called Ramah. From there, the families were sold into slavery to various Babylonians. Families were torn apart. Imagine the pain of seeing your child torn from you. Some sold into slavery to one person and another one sold into slavery to another one and you never saw them again. Well, in the midst of this unspeakable pain, Jeremiah says, One day your voice will cease its weeping, and your eyes will cease its tears, for your children shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. That hope? That hope is God is going to bring his people back from exile, and he's going to do it by sending a new victorious king who will begin a new covenant and will change the hearts and reconcile them to each other and to God and bring peace on earth. See, Matthew is showing you that the, the ultimate exodus from all other exodus was pointing to Jesus. He is the deliverance from our bondage to sin. He's the deliverance and return from our exile from God. Then Matthew applies that truth to this situation. On one hand, you have this horrible news that children all over Bethlehem have been slaughtered, but at the same time, there is good news. There is a hope. A a new king is born. A king who will conquer death, not cause it. A king will heal, not hurt. A king who will not exploit others for his own purposes, but would pour himself out for us. A king who would reconcile himself to us and and to each other. The good news is, Herod doesn't get the last word. This king does. Why do horrific things happen? How do we cope with school shootings and wars and senseless violence in the world? Well, evolution would say, well, it's just survival of the fittest. Others would just say, well, that's just the way it is. But the gospel says this is not true. The gospel says that the Herods of the world don't get the last word that Jesus does. God can take all that Herod intended for evil and overturn it for good. That when we put our trust in Jesus, that we have the hope of heaven. And in that moment, in the same way that a mother forgets the pain of childbirth when they hold their baby for the first time, we will have our past hurts and tears wiped away. Death has been defeated. There is no more crying. Oppression is gone. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. There is hope in the middle of pain. There's hope in the middle of death. Evolution and science can't offer enough wisdom. A king has been born that's going to bring an end to the curse of sin and bring an end to all suffering. Those that we lost in tragedy, we will be reunited with again. And it was all because of one baby. Let's pray. Lord, over these last few days, 
the Christmas season has come and gone, but Lord, I pray that we would not stop celebrating you. God, in the midst of all of this, what the world is going on in the world right now, God, there's, there's so much tragedy and, and hurt and pain, and God, you present hope in the middle of all of it. You sent your Son so that we would have eternal life. That one day we will stand in heaven when we put our faith in you. One day all the pain that we have, all the aches that we have, all the, all the, the, the painful scars of, of memories that we have will all disappear in, in one moment as we stand before you. And so God, I pray that those that are listening today, maybe they thought they, they, they couldn't come before you, maybe they thought they weren't worthy to be in your presence. You were not sent to save just the Jewish people. You were sent to save the entire world. And so when we put our trust in you today, God, we can have everlasting life. So God, we thank you. We pray peace as we're walking into 2021. Pray that, uh, that your blessing would be on your church and that we would recognize that our job is not done yet as a church. Our job is to preach the gospel everywhere we go, whether it be in the town that we're situated in now or whether it be to the, to the nations overseas and, and, and other words. So God, we thank you, Lord. We pray, pray your blessing. We ask this in your name. Amen.